0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. doing my good friends thank you again for stopping by today today i have my granddaughter kylie and daughter annie with me they're gonna listen to the story along with you my good friends and we'll see if they have any comments to add say hello girls hello girls yeah i hope you heard that well but anyway as those who wish to move westward and settle in the great expanse of america they're were already mountaineers living in the backwoods of the Appalachian Mountains. They were a hardy breed of human, mostly because they had to be. Mountaineers lived in the Appalachians for a hundred years before they were found out by the national media at the outbreak of the Civil War. Of course, the mountain folk were introduced to America as backwoods bumpkins, constantly smoking in pipes and chewing tobacco, and wearing coonskin caps with buckskin moccasins and living off self-made log cabins and with very few furnishings, all the while sipping their white lightning and causing trouble. In reality, many a mountaineer kept to themselves, and they kept moonshine stills, which made their lives more bearable or maybe more pleasurable at least. They used the old barter system of trade since they had little money to due to the remoteness of their homes and stores of any kind they actually had very little use for money anyway but to spite it all the hill people were generous to each other whatever they had to offer they offered it to their guests and even strangers a mountaineer was a loyal friend but he could also become a fierce enemy if which was demonstrated during the hatfield and mccoy feud but Violence didn't normally come unprovoked. Come on in, sit back there, and let me tell you the true tale about a mountaineer from the mountains near my old home place. Dr. M.B. Taylor was always a mystery to those who look at him in history. He was a legend in the mountains of Southwest Virginia and Eastern Kentucky, and due to his red hair and red beard, he was known as the Red Fox of the Mountains. As you look at Mr. Taylor, you find a very complex individual. He was many things all rolled into one. His resume includes Herb Doctor, Preacher, Revenue Agent, and U.S. Marshal. He himself even claimed that he could communicate with spirits. Doc Taylor, as he was known, felt he had a unique view of the life and people and, that he came across. He rode with a Bible in his cider bags and preached most Sundays in Wise County or uh, somewhere nearby there in southwest Virginia. He would also cross the mountains into Kentucky and have a go in their churches as well. Mountain folks seemed to really like his style of preaching. He was a student of Dr. Moran L. Stollard a noted Lee County, Virginia physician who taught him how to treat various illnesses. Doc Taylor soon gained the reputation of being a good medical doctor. Back in, folks, if you studied under a doctor and satisfied his requirements as a student, you were considered a doctor, officially or not. When he made a house call to treat somebody who was seriously ill, he would show up with his herbs and he would sometimes stay until the patient was either well or At least on the mend, Doc was also very good in the delivery of babies. His preaching and doctrine had him pretty much traveling continuously all over the mountains and mingling with the people. He was well acquainted with moonshiners and bootleggers and knew where they operated. He also didn't like it at all and saw them as dregs of society and uh, spirit. One day something in him just reached a level where he was done with being helpless, and he watched what he thought to be the world going down the drain from all of the moon shining and bootlegging. He decided to ask federal officials to make him a revenue officer because he felt that, well, he knew how and where to look in order to stop the illegal activities. They took him up on his offer, and he was hired and trained immediately as a United States Deputy Marshal. He took pride in displaying his authority, riding a beautiful star-faced black fox trotter stallion all over the mountains. In addition to his Bible and herbs, he began to carry a small arsenal along with him. He wore a twin coat, 45 Peacemakers on a gun belt that shined full of brass cartridges. That he had a huge 50 by 75 Winchester tied to his saddle for, a long, for the long shots if he needed them. He carried a polished brass telescope that he strapped over his shoulder. The telescope, which could be extended to about five feet, was used to spot horseback riders carrying moonshine and jolt wagons full of illegal liquor. Dr. or Marshall Taylor was one of the most unique characters to live in the mountains of eastern Kentucky and southwest Virginia. He stopped in a small town of Donkey, located in Pound River in Virginia. A donkey had a violent history with as many as 50 murders within just a few years. The man, the name of the town was later changed to Pound after Pound Gap in the Pound River nearby. The donkey settlement became an outlaw hangout and favorite hidey hole due to its location along the natural passway between the states of Kentucky and Virginia. The nearness of the state line was of great importance when they needed to escape depending on which state was coming after. Doc Taylor often traveled there along the state line and enjoyed visiting Big Ed Hall after Big Ed's appointment as a U.S. Marshal. Big Ed was originally from Floyd County, Kentucky, but moved to Donkey due to the heavy incidents of crime. Big Ed, of course, had an immediate impact once he was there. He was a famous mountain man and bounty hunter at other times of his life. He stood nearly six foot three and weighed over 200 pounds at the time when he, average man was about five seven and weighed about 140 pounds. It wasn't long after getting settled that Doc started making his house calls again. The mountain people welcomed him into their cabins for food and sleep. During his travels though, he would often sit on any one of several mountain tops looking out over the land through his brass telescope as the, he watched for signs of smoke which was a telltale sign where illegal moonshine was being made Doc knew the mountains like the back of his hands and he could swoop down in a mountain on a moonshiner before he even knew he was there make an arrest destroy the still and bring the prisoner to the county jail in gladsville now that's in virginia in a very short order uh, gladville was the county seat of wise county but its name was changed to Wise in 1924. If he was outnumbered or faced situations he feared, Doc would set back and take pot shots from a safe distance with that rifle we just talked about. Doc sometimes just appeared from behind bushes along the trail to talk with a passerby, only to be seen or heard from a great distance away not long after that, leaving the passerby to wonder if he had some kind of superpower. Doc often traveled by foot to throw people off his trail. He had an extra pair of boots that he put the soles on backwards. Then he carried them on his saddlebags or with his medical supplies. Sometimes he wore them to confuse anybody trying to track him. All of his antics, along with his red hair and beard, finally earned Doc the nickname of the Red Fox of the Mountains. There were times where Doc's fugitives ran directly into him while thinking he was putting distance between him and them. Now, folks and girls, many moonshiners and bootleggers lived in Kentucky but sold their product on the Virginia side of the mountain. The fox made life hard for them still yet traveling for miles with his medicine and herbs to treat the sick. Day or night, he gave comfort, rarely charging anything in return. If any given day, Doc would make sick calls, perform weddings, or preach at a funeral, deliver a baby, watch for moonshiners, or perform any other task that doctors, preachers, or lawmen perform, all in a day's work for him. Doc was accused of murdering an outlaw by the name of Robert Moore in the town of Donkey in 1876. He was tried but found not guilty for lack of evidence, although it was generally felt that Doc killed Mr. Moore. He was acquitted after supposedly arranging himself an alibi. There were many mountain people who owed Doc for his services, after all. The Red Fox's work as a federal marshal caused resentment amongst some of the roughest characters in the mountains, one being, as one of the characters we mentioned in last week's show, Bad Ira Mullins. He lived about ten miles north of Gladville and, as we already know, was a moonshiner and a bootlegger. Bad Ira was a big, gaunt-looking, rough mountaineer who feared no man. He hauled whiskey back and forth in a jolt wagon and covered with, was covered with straw. In that era, bootleggers and moonshiners generally showed up at the county seat or courthouse on the court days and Ira's customer could count on him to be there with his liquor. Doc Taylor's police duties also brought him to Gladville and he was aware of Ira's activities. He had taken pot shots at Ira as he traveled from Kentucky to Virginia the only damage being done to some of Ira's liquid merchandise, which is what Doc was trying to destroy in the first place. The hatred between the two men began when bad Ira was ambushed in the town of Gladville while bringing in what is said to be a legal load of liquor from North Carolina. The lawmen opened fire on Ira and his party, killing his driver. Ira and his other workers escaped when they ran and took cover in the home of one of his customers. Later in that day, Ira walked out of town, but he now had a vendetta with him Ira lost his whiskey and his driver, and also he lost his freedom because he would, from then on, have to duck, dodge, and hide from the Red Fox who he thought had did the deed to start with. They treated me like a dog, he said. They bushwhacked me right in the town of Gladville, mind you, and tried to shoot me down like a dog. Ira vowed that he would get the Red Fox and place the $300 bounty on his head. And that's no small amount for that era, and at that time, it's worth about seventy-eight hundred dollars in today's money. May fourteenth, eighteen ninety-two, was a court day in Gladville, Virginia, and we now know that what that means, the whiskey's on the way. Now, it was known that the law generally overlooked those those activities, the activities of the sellers of the illegal liquor. That is unless it led to some kind of violence or trouble. Doc woke early that morning and headed to the top of Pine Mountain for a meeting with two men, two mean characters, Cal and Heenan Fleming. Doc had information that bad Ira Mullins would be bringing several barrels of illicit liquor and as much as $1,000 in cash to Gladville that day. He and the Flemings planned to put a stop to that, and he was coming from Kentucky. Uh, Doc knew that bad Ira had put up a bounty payable to whoever waylaid Doc. He decided that he had to get the best and do something right now about it before it does come to fruition, and he would be the one pushing up daisies. He watched the Kentucky County or country through his telescope while the brothers waited. He didn't know who or how many would be in Ira's group. Usually, Ira came with his wife and 14 year old son, but at times he would also bring his farmhand. Since it would be a busy day in Gladville, Ira may have a few extra with him. Finally, Doc saw what he thought to be Ira's jolt wagon, with two horses pulling it up the north side of Pine Mountain. Boys, it looks like Ira's wagon's coming, Doc said. Let's stay quiet and out of sight until I'm sure it's them. After a couple more minutes, the wagon came through Pound Gap. The Fox and the Flemings slipped down the south side of the mountain and prepared to ambush them. Ira's party from the vantage point from behind a large rock overlooking the dirt road. That's where they were going to do it. The men covered their faces with green veils to hide their identities and waited. As the wagon came back into view, they saw Ira's brother, Wilson Mullins, walking in front of the wagon with his rifle at the ready. Soon, the horses and wagon came into view. Lorenzo Mullins, who was Ira's wife, as we said last week, sat next to John Chappell, a farmhand who held the reins of the wagon. John saw Wilson's wife, Jane, following behind the wagon astride a horse. And Ira's son, John, and his friend Greenberry Harris walked behind the whole mess. There were seven altogether in the group, several more than expected. Ira must have thought there was safety in numbers the fox knew better. There were two ladies, two kids, and Ira was paralyzed, so the fox wasn't concerned about him. Bad Ira had been left paralyzed earlier by one of the fox's bullets that severed his spine during a shootout while the fox attempted to confiscate Ira's whiskey. That was just after the fox took pot shots at Ira, destroying his load of whiskey, and he had to walk out of town. It wasn't long after that 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 happened. Fox knew they would catch him by surprise and Ira's party would be like sitting ducks right in front of him. As the wagon neared their hiding place, the fox could see the wagon full of straw and then confirmed it was bad Ira Mullins perched in the back. He was propped up in the back of the wagon laying on a blanket covered with a bed of straw and his fire water, of course. The thunder of Lever action Winchesters ripped through the mountains as the Flemings opened fire and Ira and his crew. Meanwhile Fox shot the two horses hitched to the wagon before directing him his aim at Ira. After all he can't get away if the wagon horses are dead. The attack was so sudden that there was hardly an answer to the barrage of gunfire. Soon the wagon road was turned red by the blood of the victims and the horses. Each of the victims was shot many times. Ira was shot twice in the chin, twice in the head, and once in the shoulder. Side, wrist, abdomen, thighs, and leg. Jane Mullins ran to her husband's aid, but he was dead. Don't shoot no more, she yelled. Whoever's shooting, you're going to kill us all. Dern, you take to the road and leave, or you'll get it too, came an answer from the rocks. She looked in the direction of the voices and saw three men who were partially masked, thinking she thought she recognized Doc Taylor and the other two looked and sounded like Cal and Heenan Fleming. Jane leaped astride her horse, whipped it into a gallop and headed toward the county seat of Gladville. Once she arrived there, she found Deputy Sheriff John Miller at the Wise County Courthouse and reported the ambush. Then she fled back into Kentucky, but not before telling the sheriff that it was Doc Taylor and those Fleming boys, Cal and Heenan. There were three of them, and she heard their voices and was sure it was them. She told him that she feared they were, they've were they killed Ira and all of, him, all of them but her, actually. She had no way of knowing that Ira's 14-year-old son had ran like a scared rabbit all the way back to Kentucky, holding his overalls up as he went. He had to do that because a shot had cut his suspenders in two, and he had to hold them up to keep them from falling down around his ankles. The other five, included Ira, were dead, shot numerous times. Somebody even shot out Ira's eyes. The killers quickly relieved Mrs. Ira Mullins of several thousand dollars and followed up by mutilating her body and running off into the woods. The family and neighbors of Wilson and Jane Mullins recovered the bodies of the deceased and took them to Wilson Mullins' home where they were in the township of Jenkins, Kentucky, it's where it's located now. There wasn't enough room for them to get inside, so some were placed on the porch. And Jenkins, Kentucky, as we know, was the birthplace of uh, Gary Powers. Deputy Sheriff Miller took Jane Mullins to protective custody at Gladville. She was only the only witness that could place Doc and the Flemings at the scene of the shooting, and he would rather say that he believed her account of the shootings right from the beginning. The Red Fox had told him about Ira's bootlegging many times, and Sheriff Miller knew that he hated bad Ira because of his liquor sales and had left some families in dire straits. The deputy had even talked with Doc the day before about Ira coming to town the next day to sell his liquor because a large number of folks were coming to town because of their interest in the Taught Hall trial. This one's going to get even better. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. i hear you who was taught hall well that's better left to another episode but in short he was a fugitive brought back by their fox who among various other things shot police chief enos hilton in the rail yard in norton virginia and left him for dead which uh, he actually died about 12 hours after being wounded Doc had went to Memphis with Sheriff Wilson Holbrook and a small contingent of officers to watch over Talt's return after he was arrested in Memphis. Deputy Miller also said it was odd that the Fox was absent during the last 20 hours of Talc Hall's murder trial, especially after Fox had diligently stood guard over Hall during the entire trial. Well, right up till then at the conclusion of hall's trial the verdict of guilty was read and he was sentenced to be hung by the neck until dead he was finally going to face the hangman unlike earlier trials when he escaped paying the ultimate price by when the jurors were too scared to find him guilty uh, yes he was that mean Todd hall's neck stretching party was set for september 2nd 1892 everybody knew that they couldn't keep him in gladville until then because Talt's Confederates would bust him out of the local vigilantes would show up and just get him out of there. And, you know, so they took him to Lynchburg for safekeeping. That's quite a stretch from there to Lynchburg, but uh, I guess they figured the vigilantes that were wanted to lynch him wouldn't travel that far. The parts of the puzzle to the Ira Mullins murder started falling together after the visit from Jane Mullins. The sheriff and deputies investigated the murder scene. Doc and the Flemings had fled into the mountains where the fox knew his way around better than anybody else there. During the eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds there was a tenacious man of uh, manhunters in the mountains, big Ed Hall, a U.S. Marshal that and friend of Doc Taylor's, Doc Swindell, and after last week's episode, and to redeem the good name Branham, for my Appalachian brother David McKinney, Gooseneck Branham, who was actually a cousin of Clifton Branham. His real name was John Henry Branham, and he got his name Gooseneck, well, eh, because he had what folks described as a Gooseneck. These guys organized a posse, comprised of 22 of the best available men to hunt for the red fox and the Flemings. They met at a home by the Pound River to plan their fox hunt, so to speak. They were all aware of Fox's cunning, Deputy Sheriff Miller also joined the group. The fox left misleading clues, exasperating the lawmen and deputies. After several days and nights in the wilds, they just stopped searching, saying that the fugitive just couldn't be found. During this period, the fox was a topic of conversation throughout the mountain area. I'm gonna shoot a hole through the fox big enough to crawl through, foot what Gooseneck Branham said. It wasn't long though before somebody gave some information as to where the fugitives might be hiding out. Heavily armed posse slid through the woods to the site, but as the men moved toward their quarry, Booker Mullins slipped and fell. His cock gun blasted a warning, a, a warning signal into the air that rang out through the mountains like thunder. After a brief skirmish, in which lawman or outlaw Heman Flinning was wounded. Doc and the two brothers, or other brothers, somehow vanished back into the mountains, even with the guy wounded. Doc Swindell was proven right when he'd said that the Red Fox couldn't continue living in the mountains too long because he was now getting older and being hunted by such a large posse of people. Fox found it to be a good time to separate from the group. He slipped away and made his way home to Gladville. He was there just a day or so before... Under the cover of darkness and wearing a disguise, he crept to his son Sylvan's home in Norton. At nearly three o'clock in the morning, Fox tapped on his door at at Sylvan's to let him in. And Fox had lost several pounds while running from the law and his clothes were no longer fitting him. Fox being smart, knew he couldn't stay there too long and started planning to get out of the mountains. Sylvan and his wife fed Fox before hiding him in a loft above the kitchen. A loose board enabled him to reach food up to him. He told his son that he was leaving the mountain area and planned to start a new life in Florida. A day or so later, Sylvan's brother Johnny arrived with a long box that had been used to ship fruit trees. Early the next morning, Fox came down from the attic for the first time since he got there. He ate, bathed, and dressed in new clothes. A quilt was wrapped loosely around him before he laid down in the box. And Fox was, of course, uncomfortable. He didn't like what he was going through, but what alternatives really did he have? Silver nailed the box shut and it was taken by wagon to the train depot at Norton. The box was labeled for shipment to Bluefield. West Virginia, once in Bluefield, That is, it would be put aboard Norfolk and Western train destined for Florida. What you got there, boys, the station master asked for the box to be checked in at the Norton train station. Oh, just a few books and stuff I wanted to ship to Bluefield, Johnny said. The crate was put aboard a box car, but railroad workers in Norton were suspicious of the fruit tree box that Johnny uh, Taylor, the Red Fox son, had checked in for shipment. They sent word to the Virginian Commonwealth's attorney, R.P. Bruce, who, and to U.S. Marshal Big Ed Hall, who had continued his search for the fugitives from the bloody massacre. He hadn't give up at all. And, beknownst to Fox, Hall mounted his horse and galloped to the station in time to board a train. As the train headed toward Bluefield, the red fox breathed a sigh of relief as the train was leaving Virginia. He was thinking about Florida and making a new start in life. Meanwhile, Big Ed Hall wondered what to to expect from his old friend and fellow U.S. Marshal Doc Taylor once they arrived in Bluefield. When the train pulled into the Bluefield station, Big Ed Hall clambered down from his coach and walked directly to the boxcar before the luggage and other items were unloaded. Big Ed showed his credentials to the authorities and when the fruit tree box was taken from the train, he directed one agent to open it. The box opened after a few whacks, and there lay the red fox of the mountains. Why, well, fancy meeting you here, Fox said with a grin. Don't so much as breathe, Doc, or I'll blow your brains out. The legendary manhunter answered in a deep voice. Fox offered no resistance. Local authorities arrived shortly after and dragged the fox in for murder. of uh, The murder of bad Ira Mullins and his family. When Fox was returned to Wise, Virginia, to stand trial for the murders, he was put in a cell next to, of all people, Taunton Hall. By this time, Taught had exhausted all of the, his appeals and was awaiting the hangman's noose. The fox seemed to fear Taught by, and offered to shake his hands but to heal old wounds. But Taught responded by giving him a good cussing and whacking him across the head with his manacles. I ain't shaking hands with nobody that kills women and children, Talt blurted and said with disgust. Both the hunter and the hunted are now confined in a close quarters. Talt stared coldly at Fox, making him feel real uneasy. Finally, the guards led Talt from his cell to the gallows. The doomed man paused as he passed in front of Doc's cell. He said, Doc, I want you to know that I ain't got no hate left in me. I'm not taking that to the grave with me. The fox nodded at him, but stayed a safe distance away from the bar so he couldn't reach in and grab him. Tall Hall stood motionless on the trap door of the gallows. It was the first hanging ever in Wise County, and two upright beams were used to hold the trap door in place, which was latched to a short piece of rope. After a signal was given by the sheriff, the beams were knocked out from under the trap door, and... It sank an inch or two just causing Tot to stand there on his toes to keep from being choked to death. It would have almost been funny if not for being well, an actual execution and being so serious. Then Sheriff Holbrook said, May God have mercy on this man's soul, as he whacked a piece of rope with a hatchet. Tot was then launched into the hereafter, as the sheriff wept and left the box which enclosed the gallows. Fox could Hear the hanging? He watched his timepiece for nearly two minutes following talks fall through the trap door and the snap of the rope. He then breathed a sigh of relief before returning to his hammock and Bible. Fox of the Mountain was soon found guilty of the murder of Ira Mullins and members of the Mullins family. He later went before Judge Morrison for his sanity and sentencing hearing. It was the first capital murder case before Judge Morrison, and it would be the most notable. Before him sat the famed red fox of the mountains. After a short proceeding, Judge Morrison then announced the sentence of hanging to be carried out in Wise, Virginia. And on October 27th, 1893, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. The Red Fox of the Mountains was now doomed. He asked that his, he be able to wear white attire for his hanging, including the hood. It was customary for a black hood to be placed over the head of the doomed prisoner prior to their hanging, but his wish was granted, and he would well, be able to wear a white suit and a white hood. His wife, Nancy, made him a complete suit of white linen, even to the, did the uh, cap and the sash and the tie in his hands. Everything was white. His lawyers tried every legal maneuver under the sun to get a new trial after he was found guilty and sentenced to hang. But Mr. Marshall B. Taylor was hanged at Wise Courthouse at 2.20 p.m. November uh, October 27, 1893. He ascended the scaffold at 2 o'clock, Here he read from the Bible and offered a final prayer. The sheriff adjusted the white cap at 2.10, but the fox was overcome with these preparations. He shook as if he had a chill, reeled and fell heavily to the floor. He was quickly jerked back up, the rope adjusted, and the trap sprung at 2.20. In 18 minutes, Dr. Cherry, the attending physician, pronounced him dead from strangulation. His body was turned over to friends now that being said years later dr cherry said doc taylor wasn't hung he said the fox was a mason like himself and so were all the other 18 people who were inside the gallows enclosure dr cherry said that there had never been a mason legally hanged and that doc taylor was disguised and walked from the gallows with the others in the group Ample weight was enclosed in the coffin, which was never open. And said Doc Taylor, went to Missouri where he lived the remainder of his life. Now, what do you think about that, girls? Yeah. Now, that's crazy, that's right. Now, if that's true, and the attending doctor ought to know, that would be an even better reason to call him the Red Fox of the Mountains, wouldn't it? I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us, please. If you'd like even more episodes of this and the world of murder, mystery, and legend, along with the Deviant Report, consider becoming a subscriber, $1.99 a month, for extra episodes of all three. Just go to anchor.fm and look up Appalachian murder, mystery, and legend, because that's where it's all listed. Please join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast, where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend. I'll see you then. Say goodbye, girls.